0: It's time to talk Sixers. Simmons off balance and an incredible bank shot is good. Here on the broadcast, the official podcast of Sixers.com. Embiid drives down the lane. He goes in and slams it. Oh, man, what a play by Embiid. Now, here's today's episode. Well,
1: things did not quite go the 76ers way Thursday night in Miami. Another hard-fought, close game against the Heat Heat pick up the win at 108-99, so now an opportunity for the 76ers to come back home for a couple days on Friday and Saturday, rest, reload, recharge, and then get ready for the finale of a stretch of four straight on the road Sunday night in Brooklyn. Brian Seltzer welcome you in to a Friday edition of the podcast. It will be great. It will be our true esteemed privilege to welcome back in for this edition of Our guy, boss man Charlie Widows, only certain prime choice, prime cut editions of the pod are enough to pry Charlie away from his directorial duties, and this is one of them because we've got Kevin Pelton from ESPN on the podcast, and we'll be talking, we'll step away from the day-to-day drumbeat of things related to the Sixers and talk about a recent article that Kevin worked on, along with some other great basketball minds, Bobby Marks and Chris Herring, his colleagues from ESPN, the best 25 under 25. And uh, I suppose not so surprisingly, the 76ers well represented on that list. So the chats with Kevin will bring in Chuck in just a moment. A reminder that to subscribe to the podcast, you can do a couple things. You can head to iTunes. You can go to Google Play. You can go to Stitcher and type in Sixers Podcast Network, or you can visit our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com backslash Sixers. So on the heels of a hellstorm that has battered the Northeast the last couple days, we felt like we needed something here at Sixers Podcast Central to transport us to a warmer frame of mind, like a mid-July sweltering 115-degree Las Vegas summer league heat. (laughs) frame of mind and there's no one who does that better than ESPN analyst extraordinaire Kevin Pelton who joins us once again on the podcast. What's up Kev?
2: Yeah it's surely not uh, as bad weather wise here in Seattle where it's just the, the stereotypical misty rain at the moment but could also use that warmer frame of view myself.
1: We would love to talk about tender pork shoulder and other fine dining options inside the cosmopolitan but if we were to go over the best 25 under 25 would you oblige
2: i would although it might get a little hot for me here as well
0: (laughs)
3: yeah you i mean you were we can go into it but i think simmons was the one that you might have been highest on relative to the the committee of our guys
2: uh, yeah, let's see. I had him sixth. Chris Herring had him fourth. I mean, that was that was really kind of that uh, Bobby Marks was uh, a little lower on Simmons than the rest of us, right. placing him at 12th.
1: And then there was Joel Embiid, of course, who ranked overall amongst the poll at number three. So how did you guys go about assessing each of these players and formulating the list?
2: Yeah, I mean, so it, it's future potential, which... I think one of the questions here is, first off, I I see potential is different than some people see that as kind of interchangeable with upside or, uh, but to me, it's just kind of like, what's the, you know, of all the possible outcomes you could take over the next few years here, what's the most likely outcome for you or what's the average of those outcomes? So with Embiid, the big factor there becomes, you know, what's going to happen with his health. I mean, I think any of those, the top five big guys... Any of the top six, if you want to, Simmons probably belongs in that first tier as well. But the top five are all, you know, big men of relatively similar age and experience. Uh, well, Anthony Davis being a little bit farther advanced in his career. But, you know, you can kind of throw a blanket on those guys and uh, all of them are going to be elite players in the league. So at that point, what becomes a bigger factor probably is the fact that you do have the health issues with Embiid that, uh you know, fortunately have not held him back this season, but you always worry a little bit could be an issue again in the future.
3: Right. I, um, I'd love to take a step back. I mean, this, to me, this is a fun list because it's, it's almost like, you know, the NBA rank stuff over the summer, but it's in the season. So it's like in real time, we, we have a chance to kind of recalibrate from what we thought before the season to now. Um, and between you, Bobby Marks and Chris Herring, obviously people who have, Scouting and analytics backgrounds, which I think adds a little bit of validity to this type of a list Um, What's the exercise like for you three when you're going through and and doing this?
2: Yeah, I don't know what it is for them for me. It it really does start with the uh, you know, kind of the statistical projections so I have for individuals uh, the Shaney projection system that kind of looks at based on similar players, how you're going to develop over the next three years. And then uh, I also factor in ESPN's real plus minus and and how players project to do that over the next three years. And that's kind of the base. And, you know, players move up and down from there based on, you know, cases where, you know, they might be better or worse than the statistical projections. But that's you know just from for me in the way i think about things it's easier to start with that list and change from it than you know kind of start from scratch
3: got it just sorry one quick follow-up um do you are there you mentioned tier like ben ben simmons is part of maybe the top tier um this seems like there's probably a drop off at least in my mind around i don't know 10 or so in the list do you see kind of different levels within the top 25
2: for sure yeah and i mean you know, part of this is exercises. it becomes increasingly difficult to separate the players as you get outside, you know, the top 15 or so. But I, I think, you know, the, the top six are guys with superstar potential, mm-hmm. I would say, with Simmons and Embiid, both in that group. And then there's a group, you know, I think the all-star potential, but not necessarily that, you know, kind of superstar potential, probably seven through 14 maybe 7 through 16, I don't know, somewhere in that range. And then you kind of take another step down to players who have a chance to become all-stars but more likely are just going to be you know, very good role players, very good starters for their teams. I
1: know we're going to dive in on a bunch of the Sixers guys, but it really does amaze me every time I look at Giannis's age and yeah. see that it's, let alone <laughs> yeah. under 25, but under 24. It's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah, and that's where you know him and him and AD was an interesting question at the top of this list. Uh, AD obviously has been off the charts the last few weeks here, where nobody in the NBA has been better. But over the course of the year, I think you know Giannis has been the better of those two players, and he's still got two years of development in front of him compared to Davis.
3: How much separation within that top six group for you um, do you find? I mean, are some of it, is some of it kind of give or take, or or do you find? To stick clear distinction in there within there?
2: Not a lot, I don't think. I mean, you know, to go to reference those statistical projections, uh the difference between, you know, the top and the bottom player in that group is fifty-two wins over the next three years as compared to forty-four. So and then there's no one else above thirty-one, so or above thirty-six, I should say. Uh so you know, those 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 five guys at the top, and then I would also throw in Simmons whose projection is a little lower, partially because you know, he missed last season. Mm. Uh, I think yeah, that there is a, a pretty big distinction, especially with, you know, Chris Daps Porzingis is the other guy who I think would have a case to be in that group. But uh, he he, you know, with his ACL injury and concern about that going forward, that's what kind of knocks him out in my mind.
1: In the context of this, obviously, one demarcation line is age for under 25 as far as this list goes. But do you think, Kevin, with Embiid another important demarcation line is the fact that just earlier this week he played his 82nd game? And how much do you think that could go to further changing perceptions of what he might be, the confidence that people have in him, and the fact that this year he, for the most part, aside from that little stretch in December, has been a relatively durable option for the Sixers?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you definitely are more uh, optimistic about his future at this point than, you know, this time a year ago because of the fact that not only has he been able to stay on the court and play back-to-backs, but ramp up his minutes. So, you know, it, last year it was very limited minutes even when he was playing. And this year it's a, a full load and it hasn't had any, you know, a negative effect on his performance whatsoever. Not that you would have necessarily expected that, but it's nice to know that it hasn't happened. And then I think the other element is, you know, obviously the Sixers were a very were a competitive team last year when Embiid was on the court, but still seeing him do this for a playoff team and a team that's fighting for playoff positioning, I think all of that just you know kind of strengthens your impression of what a big factor he can be on a winning team.
3: Obviously, past injury would affect future projection. I, I wonder how um, for Joel with considering the, the team was clearly rebuilding um, and emphasizing development and, and being overly cautious really with a lot of its young talent until this year. Um, does it, do you have to treat it a little bit differently than someone who say underwent a cat, like a Chris Dapp style uh, injury before? Um, do you, you know, like say, you know, if, his minutes last year, maybe he could have played more than 28, but that was part of his long-term development plan. Um, do you have to kind of weigh that with a team as opposed to someone who was would have been, was being counted on to play huge minutes leading up to their injury?
2: So I would say that's probably more true with Simmons mm-hmm. and him missing all of last season than it is with Embiid, just because of the you know the history of the navicular fracture for big men has been you know as ugly as it has. I think you know wherever Simmons or wherever Embiid rather would have landed. You know, teams would have been very cautious with him because of that and because of his talent, like, you know, the everything that's at stake.
3: Right. Whereas Ben had his injury, but then he's come back and he's been durable. And so you kind of can brush it off.
2: Yeah. And that's a much more common injury. I mean, also, you know, not a not a good injury to have if you're someone who's six foot ten, but not nearly as serious as the navicular fracture has been.
0: Right.
1: I guess when you look at the per 36 numbers for Joel, there's really not too much of a difference between last season and this season. But just following him this year, um, watching him, anything else that's become more apparent to you about Embiid and where he's going as far as his developmental and growth path is concerned?
2: I mean, I think just better ability to read the game, which... Was, was what was incredible about his performance last season in particular the fact that he was so effective as a guy who had played as little high level basketball as he had uh, I think was it, it it probably doesn't get enough credit like the fact that you know he'd played what half a college season basically mm-hmm. one year of varsity in high school I mean it, it's insane for someone to come in after that and be as dominant as he was right away but uh you know i think in terms of you know his assist rate going up his turnover rate going down you know those two factors that's just experience reading the game and and knowing you know kind of what's going to happen that is impossible to replicate in in a practice setting or you know particularly if you're rehabbing uh he just kind of had to play the minutes along the lines of what you guys said earlier about how few games he's played at this point
1: people do talk about the turnovers obviously with him and That's something that perhaps as the season goes along, maybe a little bit of fatigue is settling in. But, I don't know, for my liking, it's nice to hear him sound self-aware about it. He's been kind of critical of himself the past couple games uh, over the last week. Um, I don't know. I feel like uh, as far as looking at the whole package, that's always a welcome thing to hear someone be able to recognize that sort of deal and uh, do what he can to try and iron those kinks out.
3: Yeah, and we've talked about it before. I think, KP, with you, like, turnovers for young players isn't necessarily a bad, uh, bad indicator for future success.
2: Right. You know, historically there's been kind of more room for growth because of the fact that those turnovers tend to mean that you're trying things out there on the court as opposed to someone who's playing a more conservative style. And that, you know, eventually as your experience grows, as it has with Joel, that, you know, those turnovers, the, the play that you just, you see, but you can't quite execute turns into a play that you do in fact execute.
1: If there were a NBA player fascination scale, where would you put Joel in his case and where he ultimately could go on that?
2: I think he's got to be top five, especially when you factor in the off court, uh, you know, personality and and the Twitter and and Instagram and everything like that, along with this unique skill set and ability to dominate with such little experience. All of that. Yeah, I think top five for sure.
3: Can we talk about the homie now? We can talk about anyone. Who is not even on KP's top 25 <laughs> list. So, okay, my question is this. By nature, a, a top 25, under 25 list would p- probably skew, at least for a lot of people, towards physical projection um, because I think we probably tend to um, dream on, on this type of player. Um, but for someone his size who has become as good of a, a three-point shooter um, as he has right now, how how can he not be in the – Top 25 under 25 for you.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's the big question: is the uh, the three-point shooting aspect and whether he's going to be able to stay, you know, at this uh, 38, 39 percent level he's at right now. If he does, then for sure he's one of the top 25 mm. players under 25. I'm probably still a little skeptical, despite the the track record that European players do tend to shoot better in their second season in the NBA than their first season from three-point range in particular. Uh, you know, just looking at his track record and then still the magnitude of that improvement. I mean, I think he's, you know, he's, he's shown at this point that he's probably at least an average three-point shooter and probably better than that, but uh, I don't know if he's going to stay quite at this level.
1: I was going to ask you about that. I think he was in the low 40s his last two years over in Europe with Ephus. How much of this do you think is general progression of his own game, also maybe perhaps a reflection of his fit with what the uh, Sixers have personnel-wise?
2: Right. I mean, that's probably a a difference from last season. In addition to, uh, you know, the fact that he's just improved as a three point shooter is the fact that he's getting he's not creating as many of his own opportunities. It's a lot more catch and shoot. And those do tend to be much higher percentage. Uh, You know, I I think it's tough to tell. I mean, we've gotten fooled before by uh, three point shooting because of the fact that it does tend to be so random from season to season. And that's that's one reason I I tend to be, uh, you know, a bit skeptical there.
3: Right. Um, it's funny because I feel like we had a similar kind of conversation last year with Rookie of the Year, where it was like Malcolm Brogdon was a role player on a good team. And because of, probably because of that role, he was able to thrive. Um, whereas Dario was asked to do so much. And by the end of the year, I think that workload probably was evident in his dipping percentages. Um, now this year, we see him as really playing a complimentary role to Joel. You know, he's almost a fourth option on offense or, you know, Fifth, I don't know what it, I mean with the starters, and he clearly has played. Uh, uh, his, he's adjusted to a different role, whereas playmaking obviously was was one of the things he relied on before this. Bobby Marks had him eighteenth. I mean, is there? Are we still fighting the idea that because he's not a great athlete, um, that might limit his upside?
2: I don't think that's a big factor in my projection for it. I mean, he's shown the ability to at least competently defend mm-hmm. on the wing, which you know I think if you looked at the. the Questions you had about Sharich coming out of his rookie season were probably number one along the lines of what you said. Like he looked more comfortable even though his efficiency wasn't very good in that larger role. So was he going to slot in as kind of like a poor man's Ben Simmons where he needed the ball in his hands and that limited him to a bench role? And, you know, that's probably in conjunction with NBA three. Will he be able to shoot the NBA three, both of which he's answered in, you know, in conjunction in the positive this year? And then, uh, you know, I guess that does he have to defend fours or can he defend out on the perimeter? And he's probably answered that in the positive this year, too. So, you know, I think even though he's not in my top 25, I feel much more positively about Sharic's future than I did a year ago.
1: And obviously this type of thing is something you can't really quantify. But for me, you know, even watching him when he was playing in the Olympics for Croatia or in Eurobasket or at times last season and definitely more so this year when the games matter much more in terms of winning for the Sixers than they had a season ago, he just seems to be out there making good things happen when good things need to happen. Um, I don't know. I feel like there is something to be said. Well, yeah, and he
3: also... I would imagine his background in Europe is different than most young players who come over where they, they're playing bit roles on their, you know, if they're in the EuroLeague, they're, they're not playing significant roles. Whereas he was playing huge minutes in EuroLeague, then mm-hmm. huge minutes in the Olympics, all that stuff. And then he comes over and has, the, and then has to go through the adjustment to the NBA three-point line, which I think is probably the biggest adjustment for most, just the, the three-point line.
2: Yeah, I mean, the, the, the rule the moment is never going to be too big for him, right? which I think does, you know, if you're a less experienced European prospect that's coming over, it is different from that.
3: Yeah, and, and Brett Brown's talked about it a lot. Like, they were pretty confident that if Dario could work on, like, setting up for shots, which means, like, you know, getting his legs into the shot and getting in position, that would go a long way. And I think we've just, we've seen that. Um, his legs are fresher and he's doing more work before the shot. And you can tell the arc is better. You know, and obviously the percentage goes up with it.
1: We've had a lot of time to talk about Ben Simmons between Summer League 2016 and then going into last year and then going into this season. Um, Where would you assess the performance of Simmons compared to what you thought he'd be doing, Kevin, at this stage of the season?
2: Yeah, I th- as much as I liked Ben Simmons and thought he was, you know, clearly the best prospect in the 2016 draft, I'd say he's still ahead of my expectations. I mean, you know, one of the things that stands back stands out looking back on that that first summer league experience was, you know, there was all sorts of questions still at that point about, you know, is Simmons shooting with the right hand, and particularly. You know, his finishing around the basket was a real challenge during that summer league in Vegas. Like he was getting where he wanted on the court and then just not being able to to finish because, you know, he's dribbling left to the left side of the basket and then trying to finish using his right hand there. Um and that has not been an issue whatsoever, I would say, this season. I mean, you know, probably you guys watching as often as you do can think of, you know, a couple of occasions when it's been an issue. But, you know, he's shooting a high percentage on twos, which is, you know, going to be necessary for him to be an efficient scorer, given his free throw struggles, given the fact that he's not ever going to make shots from the perimeter uh, at this stage of his career. So I, I think that's all been really impressive. And then, uh, you know, I, I I don't think Sixers fans will ever let me down, the, live down the fact that I thought uh, coming into the season that Lonzo Ball was a clearly better passing prospect than Simmons, and that you know Simmons was getting too much credit for his passing relative to his height, rather than relative to you know the average point guard. I, I was wrong about that. I mean, I you know always acknowledge the ability to make cross court passes, which is unique to him and maybe LeBron James in the league, uh, with Lonzo being you know probably the next guy in that group, but. You know, the ability to just get it in a well-spaced floor in an NBA setting with better teammates than he had at LSU. The ability to just get into the paint, break down a defense, and make the simple pass has been far better than I anticipated.
3: Yeah. And, and the finishing, you can tell, is evolving even as the season goes on. I mean, he's been more aggressive uh, and looking to—I mean, he, as you said, he gets where he wants to go so easily. Um, he's he's finishing more. Um how much does his, you know, obviously we have him in a pretty elite class up here at the top of this list. How much does his mm-hmm. defense um, help him fit in among that group, even with his, you know, lack of outside shooting?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a big factor in it is, you know, there that was another question about him in the draft. I wasn't as concerned about it as some people were his effort level at LSU because, you know, Especially in hindsight now having watched the Showtime documentary and uh, understood what he was going through. It's clear he was just miserable that entire season and you know that that translated into uh, his effort level on the court, and so you know I always kind of expected that would be different in the NBA. But you know I think the really the most impressive thing is his ability to guard point guards and just not have that be an issue whatsoever, and and have his size be a real asset to the Sixers there, both in terms of you know what it does to blocking passing lanes and. You know, making, it, uh, making him able to contest from behind when he is beaten is inevitably all point guards are, the way the rules are right now, and then also the ability to switch pick and rolls. So all of that I think has been very impressive and is a big factor in why I think he's such a valuable player.
1: And that really seems to be something that possibly even took the Sixers coaching staff by surprise, because there was mm-hmm. a stage early on this season when Brett Brown was saying, well, you're going to see him out there guarding ones, but when it comes to guys like John Wall or... Russell Westbrook, those might be spots where they mix things up a bit, but there was a period when Jared Bayless got hurt and they couldn't use him defensively on ones, and Simmons just seemed to step up and handle it much better than a lot of people perhaps thought he might have been able to yeah it's interesting. I mean,
2: that was always a point of contention when Brett Brown was talking about, no, we see we don't see Ben Simmons' point forward. We see him as a point guard. Mm-hmm. Well, did he mean that strictly on offense or did he mean that on defense as well? And, you know, clearly at at first, it was largely on offense, but uh, it has evolved to the point where now he is, in every sense of the word, despite uh, other than the fact that he's just so big and so versatile, he is a point guard now. And that's interesting in terms of, you know, kind of how it adjusts the offseason plans for the Sixers and what their needs are going to be as uh, is, is they look to using their cap space this summer.
1: And also, real quick, obviously, um, it kind of comes with the job territory. If you're a professional athlete, you need to make sure that you're in peak physical condition and shape. But I also think that Ben did a terrific job just getting himself ready physically for this season. I mean, there hasn't been – I'm trying to think of a game this season where he's really looked like he's been physically overwhelmed out there on the court. And for a 21-year-old – He looks like an NBA vet in his prime. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Physically. (laughs) Physically.
2: And and not just a twenty-one-year-old, a twenty-one-year-old who didn't play and you know basketball games last season. So yeah, I think very impressive. Right.
3: Um, yeah. I mean, on the whole, how how do you think this group stacks up? I mean, where is the league in terms of twenty-five and under talent? I mean,
2: I think that they're you know, it, when you look at the star potential of this group between Simmons and Embiid, I don't think anyone can match that. I mean. There are other teams that have multiple players in the top 25 and, you know, I think that have a chance to generate a star or two out of that group. But, you know, the Sixers are the one that you point to and say, no, this is definitely two guys on the, in this group who look like future all stars for many years to come. And then, you know, s- enough supporting talent on top of that as well. I mean, that's, you know, kind of the beauty of what the Sixers have done here is that it's not just the stars via the draft. And the cap space, but also the fact that they have generated, you know, some low cost role players like you know, TJ McConnell's never going to make this list. But mm-hmm. uh, uh, he's a very useful player, partially because of the fact that wait, is TJ already 26.
3: I think he's 25. He ineligible or did he, yeah.
2: Uh, OK, yeah, we'll be 26 by the end of the season. Yeah. Uh, um, but, so, you know, players yeah. like that, you know, also a factor in why this core is so promising.
3: To that point, you know, the the saying is always that young teams don't win um, in the playoffs. I, th- I guess what Oklahoma City is an example a couple of years ago of a team that went to the finals. Are there any, obviously because of the high end star power in Philly, that might be one where they would have a chance. Are there any other um, reasons to think that, you know, going into their first playoffs together that they would be different than the, the classic young team?
2: I mean, I think, yeah, it's just the the ability of this team and the, and where they finish. You know, if they've got a chance here with the East standings be, being as open as they are to get up and potentially have home court advantage. And that's a very different you know scenario for a young team than, you know, being down in the seventh or eighth seeds and, uh, you know, having to face right. one of the one of the top teams in the East. So I, I think really it's kind of that the next month will determine how much the Sixers can do in the playoffs.
1: In these parts of the world, it's understandable where followers of the team and some fans might look at the rookie of the year conversation and say, well, it's Simmons and it's absolutely got to be him, no question about it. But from your Sage National perspective, can you at least paint the picture as to why there is a conversation? Really, if you look at what Donovan Mitchell's done, there is a conversation. Uh, Two really good players, but there probably should be a conversation, not necessarily a one-sided debate.
2: Yeah, I think it's mostly just the fact that this looks like one of the better rookie crops in recent memory. Uh, My ESPN colleague, Micah Adams, wrote about that earlier this week, that, you know, Simmons with Mitchell Tatum has tailed off a bit, but, you know, still in that mix. Like, these these are, you know, multiple guys who would have been easy rookie of the year choices in many past years. Uh, And so that's what makes it a little more difficult. And I'm hesitant to, like, uh, declare, you know, Assess the state of the race because I think that then what happens is you know people kind of get entrenched in those positions and don't take into account the what happens over the next month that Confirmation bias kind of sets in but I do think you know one observation I've had about this year and the rookie of the year race is it feels a lot like the number one pick discussion in 2015-16 with Simmons where he got out to such a huge lead early on mm-hmm. that it It became almost passe to talk about him as the number one pick or the rookie of the year. And then it became all about the other guys and the challengers. And they get all the attention as opposed to what Simmons is doing. And, you know, kind of he he almost spoils people into not realizing how good he is.
3: Yeah, it's certainly nice to have a race where there's like lots of good candidates. (laughs) Whereas like even our guys last year clearly like Joel didn't play that many games and Dario's percentages right. at the end of the you know that they're all, they're obviously on this list so they're great players but it's it's nice to have like a real multiple candidate uh class. and
2: and it's really impressive because of the fact that you know that's it's it is unusual now because of the fact that players are coming into the league with so little college experience most of them don't help their teams win right away so for multiple guys to be doing that at a high level you know it indicates what a good position they are they are in for the future
3: right I'm trying to look at the list and see who you were higher on or lower on than than the consensus. Have you given any thought to that? I mean, I guess it looks like you had John Collins on the list, and he—I don't think he made anyone else's. Uh, Fred Van Vleet. Are these guys that are showing up in your models that maybe those other guys weren't thinking about?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, players who maybe don't necessarily have the, the, in Van Vliet's case in particular, don't necessarily have the star potential. I'm just, I'm one of the world's biggest Fred Van Vliet fans, yeah. have been dating back to his Wichita State days. So excited to see him making good on what I kind of hoped he could do coming out of there with the Raptors this year. Collins, I think, you know, is overlooked because of the fact that he's not playing a ton of minutes on a Hawks team that is uh, near the bottom of the standings. But uh, he's he's been really impressive this season on a per minute basis as his athleticism i think has exceeded what people thought about him uh coming out of college where he was more of that you know stereo traditional uh college back to the basket big man mm-hmm. has been effective in the pick and roll and and i think he's just gonna you know he's got the potential to be kind of a quint capella type who is someone else so i'm i guess uh i guess i'm not the highest because bobby marks had capella sixth, i had him tenth. yeah i know. Uh, that uh, but that kind of player in the NBA, who I think can be very valuable, even as the center position, is no longer. You know, it's more difficult now to stand out because there's so many guys that are playing well. Uh, as far as other players, I am higher on. I mean, Lonzo probably has to be high on that list. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had him. I had him tenth. I don't know if anyone else had him in the top twenty. So. Yeah, Bobby yeah, def- didn't
3: have him on the list. And then Chris had him twenty-third.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean. You know, it, it, the, how poorly he shot the ball early in the season kind of colored a lot of the discussion about Lonzo, along with the LeVar ball factor. But uh, he, he's been exceptionally versatile throughout the course of the season. As I wrote in the piece, he has a chance to join Simmons, and then uh, Oscar Robertson and Magic Johnson are the only two other guys who have ever averaged seven rebounds and seven assists per game. Yeah. As rookies.
3: he's been, I, So I guess looking at the list, Bobby's kind of trended a little more towards like the veterans of the group. Um, with Simmons and Mitchell both out of the top 10, um, and, and Ball not even on there.
2: Yeah, which favored Charge and then Julius Randle, who's a little older but has playing, been playing quite well this year. Uh, Josh Richardson, someone else I considered a lot, but ultimately didn't put in my top 25.
3: Yeah, I'm surprised. So I see um, Chris Herring put Larry Markin in 14th, and you and Bobby were both much lower on him at 24th and 23rd. Um, I'm surprised that he's so low for you guys.
2: Yeah, he's come back to earth a little bit as a shooter after the strong start. He's another one who, like we talked about with Sharish, is being asked to do a lot right. right now because of the fact that he doesn't have very good teammates. So, you know, I think you could see improvement in his shooting percentages going forward. But uh, yeah, I think that uh, his start kind of made him look maybe a little better than he is.
1: It's amazing, too, just when you see how a conversation can be brought closer to a fuller circle. Embiid being where he is on all three of your lists, and then where someone like Andrew Wiggins, the number one mm-hmm. pick in that mm-hmm. year's draft, is on the three lists, too. And, and not on my Correct. list. Correct. Yeah, this and point. not yeah. yes. Because
2: <laughs> we're we're getting to the point where yeah. uh, you know I'm I'm starting to he's starting to run out of time to be considered on potential, and at some point you know at, at in your fourth season, it's got to be about production, and still, in terms of you know efficiency offensively and making a contribution on defense, it's still not there.
1: Right. Speaking of who's on lists and who isn't, in this day and age where Sixers Twitter lives and breathes with every game day workout video by a certain number one pick selected mm-hmm. in June, Markel Fultz, perhaps for some perspective on chris herring's list at number 25 perhaps reinforcing that you know bigger picture if he were to have a chance to get himself going at some point who knows when there's still something to place in the stock of markel fultz
2: yeah i mean he's probably the most difficult single player to evaluate in this exercise because there's just not a lot of precedent for uh, what we've seen in terms of you know how the shoulder injury has affected his shot uh and you know there are scenarios where it comes back and he's the the guy that we thought was, you know, it, in my case, I thought he was the second best prospect in last year's draft and uh, uh, a big part of the Sixers future. And then there are scenarios where, you know, maybe it doesn't come back. And that's I think that that possibility is what led him to not be on my top 25.
3: So with that, is it is it kind of an asterisk? Like you you don't even want to weigh in one way or the other because you just have no idea?
2: Uh I don't know if I would say I don't want to. Win. I mean, like, like is you it, know, if we expand, if we expanded the list, I'd put him on there at some at some point. Like you, know, you just kind of have to take your best guess as you do with almost anything. But in this case, it's more it's a less informed yes than most of them would be.
3: Right. I guess the question is: Is this a, a classic like trade value list where you you would trade you wouldn't trade the you'd only trade the person below them f- for the people above them, or is this like a future projection where, um, you know, it's you want to fast forward a couple of years and then this is where they'll be.
2: Yeah. I mean, someone asked that about Van Vliet in particular with right. faults. And then, you know, of course, if you get into trade value, then all sorts of things like contract, the fact that Van Vliet's a restricted free agent this year become an issue. But uh, so I, I don't know if you could necessarily quite look at it that. I, I think it's like if a guy know, has, you know, a 10
3: percent chance at star power. Right. Or a 40 percent right. chance at star. But, you know, yeah,
1: it's it's that average outcome, like I said at the beginning. Right. Got it. Um, For as crazy as the Western Conference looks right now, it kind of seems like the East with the way Detroit and Charlotte have or have not been playing, depending on how you look at it as of late. The top eight in the Eastern Conference are settling in uh, with about a month to go. Do you have a vibe, do you have a sense based on what you've seen, what you envision the ceiling potentially being for the 76ers um, going deeper into the spring this year?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, the exciting thing is because of the fact that their their point differential has been as good as it is and third best in the East after Toronto and Boston. And then, you know, the schedule looks reasonably favorable the rest of the season. You know, because of those factors, they've got the chance to get up as high as third. And and in fact, uh, you know, the 538 Carmelo projections have, to, I, I guess, as high as fourth. I, I don't know if I can even though the 538 projections have them finishing third ahead of Cleveland, I, I still think that's unlikely with the changes the Cavaliers have made. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as high as fourth and having home court advantage in the first round, which would be really incredibly exciting.
3: Aside from the Sixers, who we've established have this clear like, upside and, and adds a little bit of volatility to the projections, are there any of these non-top three teams in the East? that you, How would you handicap that group?
2: I mean, it's tough to say because there's there's volatility, I think, with all of those teams, you know, with Washington and John Wall's return and how much they can keep going, what they've done without him once they bring him back. You know, as Markeith Morris keep playing as well as he has uh, the last month or so. Indiana, I mean, I I guess probably somewhat more settled in, although they're they're also the most surprising team in this group, the one that no one really imagined would be in the playoff picture. You know, Milwaukee had that great stretch after the coaching change. Uh, kind of a little smoke and mirrors, I think in terms of opponent shooting, which is part of why they've come back to the earth. And, you know, even Miami a, a month ago was up in, in fourth in the conference. And, you know, that was a big factor And Goran Dragic, uh, somewhat, uh, uh, I, I don't know what the right adjective explanation is here of, of, him getting that spot on the all-star team over Ben Simmons. It, it's not the pick I would have made. Yeah. Uh, I'll say that, um, uh, but largely because of the fact that they were up in fourth at that point, And now they're already all the way back down and a tie for seventh in the conference. So we've seen everybody trend up and down in this group. And I think that's probably going to continue to be the case the rest of the way.
1: I think you put the Dragic Simmons debate <laughs> in a little bit more diplomatic
3: terms than Australian <laughs> parliament. <laughs> Future contributors, to Sixers.com. Um, you mentioned Indiana and uh, it brought to mind Oladipo and, and, Trending up and down. I, I wonder, is there, if you had to guess, someone who's like not was not in your top ten or so, who in this list has the best chance of jumping up next year?
2: Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, I think you know Devin Booker, as much as he has improved over the last year, kind of going from someone who his he was in that kind of Wiggins category where the potential was obvious, but the production hadn't matched it, and mm-hmm. now the production is starting to match it. So I, I think he's got a chance to do it. You know. Uh, Jamal Murray, I'm maybe even a little higher on than his place on the list just because of his upside. He's, you know, not a traditional point guard, but he can really score. Mm-hmm. So I think he's possible. Uh, Brandon Ingram, you know, he's someone I think again, could go either direction. Really? Uh, he's been terrific over the last month, but his overall efficiency has not been that good this year. So, you know, I think we'll know a lot more about him in another year, how much closer he is to, uh, achieving that potential.
1: Yeah. All right. Great stuff, as always, from one Kevin Pelton. I am scrolling through the Eater hot map for Las Vegas,
3: March 2018, <laughs> right now. Kevin, are you as scared as I am about all 30 teams being in Las Vegas this summer?
2: <laughs> yeah, I don't know how it's going to work logistically. I, I'm just hoping they don't add additional games per day. because I was going to say, really like seating on press
3: day. row, um, oh, yeah. just people. Oof. Yeah. It's going to be thick. Oh wait! Can I ask one more question? Because I didn't get to ask um, you. There was only one of you who put Dejounte Murray on the list, and it wasn't you. Um, what, what's with? Uh, what do, where do you stand on your Husky?
2: Well, clearly I'm a hater. Husky <laughs> hater. <but> I don't <laughs> have either. Well, no. Yeah. Uh, he actually, in terms of the statistical projections, was not far off the list. He was. He was pretty close. Uh, I, I think the big question with him is, you know, how much as much talk as there is about, you know, someone like Simmons about his lack of outside shooting, like Mm. DeJounte Murray shoots him, but uh, not particularly accurate from the perimeter. And I think how much that holds him back in a larger role is, you know, or or how much he can improve on that is probably going to determine where he
1: goes from here. Great stuff. Awesome. Cool, man. Well, thank you very much for taking some time chatting. It is always enjoyable.
2: Thanks for having me.
3: Thanks, KP. We'll check in soon.
1: And a big thanks to boss man Charlie Widows for joining in on this edition of the podcast. Thank you for listening. We'll have a rewind edition of the podcast coming your way on Monday after the Sixers game against the Brooklyn Nets. Have a great weekend. See you.